We're dealing with this topic we have been called uh, Conversations with Jesus and specifically the challenges of believing. And so I'm asking you to turn in John 14 there. There's some challenges here uh, in this passage uh, that I think uh, have to do with things that we, 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 we need to believe, and, and Jesus uh, sort of presses us a bit here. When I was thinking about this, I remember when I was a kid, uh, faith for many of us, or, or when people talked about faith, uh, <clears throat> they always talked about what I would call blind faith. You know, you just believe, and I thought, well, why? I don't, I don't, I don't really go through life believing in things that there is not some evidence. There's some evidentiary information and I, and, I, and I remember that as a kid, uh, always kind of hearing people, well, it's just blind faith. And I thought, I, I don't see that in the scripture. I don't see Jesus calling on people just to, to believe anything. Then you can believe anything. Uh, it, it reminded me, I, I know it's a terrible thing to get into this brain here, but it reminded me when I thought about that, of that band. Remember the band in the 60s? Blind faith. Remember? Anybody? Come on. Some of y'all were alive in this. You know... <laughs> You know, the statement is, if you remember the 60s, you weren't there, <laughs> right? Remember? remember that? Abby Hoffman said that, that if you can remember the 60s, you weren't there. Uh, blind Faith, I, I thought about that band. Uh, it was actually uh, considered the first super band that ever came together. It was uh, Eric Clapton and Ginger Baker, who came from The Cream, and Stevie, I don't know, Steve Winwood and Rich Gooch. I can't remember how to pronounce his last name. And the funny thing is, uh, they were this first kind of super band. Uh, I, I remember uh, uh, hearing the cream when I with Jack Bruce and Ginger Baker and, and Eric Clapton, and thinking no music could ever be better than that in the world. So they decided to put this band together, and I did a little research on this. That uh, one of the things that Ginger ba or uh, Eric Clapton was concerned about that band was maybe the name <laughs> Blind Faith, uh, but that one of the problems he said was that they never practiced. Nobody wanted to practice. Nobody, nobody wanted to, to do what was the challenge of getting good. In fact, they only had one album, if you remember. Uh, remember that? Do you, ever, do you remember hearing the song, In the Presence of the Lord? That's from Blind Faith. I found the secret of life. Starts with, in the color of the Lord. And then, I found the secret of life in the presence of the Lord. Now, you know, usually when bands start doing that kind of music, they're on the downside of their career, you know? It's like when Willie Nelson brings his gospel album, you'll know his career is what? Over. <laughs> He's done. When the Who have their gospel album, you will know they're done. Uh, but, but they never practiced. Uh, uh, Eric Clapton always talked about how he was worried about it because they never practiced. They never, never really dealt with the challenges of being a band. And so every time they would go to a concert, they only had six songs from Blind Faith. And the rest of the concert they had to do in the white room and all that kind of stuff that the cream did. You know, it, you can put a bunch of musicians together. I, I saw something on TV. that I thought Ginger Baker was dead. He looked dead in the 60s, but, you know, he's still alive. Really, I, I'm not, I thought, wow, he's dead. No, he's still playing the drums. Uh, but, but they wouldn't accept the challenge of practicing and the challenge of, of being a great band. And they just made one album and they were done. I think sometimes it's the same in our life here with faith that we sometimes don't lean into what are sometimes the challenges of faith. That this whole thing about believing in Jesus at times produces a real challenge for us if we'd be honest. And so I want to look at that under this topic, the challenges of believing here in John 14. We'll read again here. When, John, when Jesus says to Philip in verse 10, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? 
The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Now, notice there, we're going to come back to this idea about evidence here in a minute. There are two basic matters of evidence that Jesus offers for faith. One is his words, and the second are his works, right? Let's, we'll look at that here in a minute. But, but Jesus is not saying the challenge of faith just means this blind faith. Just believe me. But he said, hear my words and hear my works. Okay, here's, here's what we call evidence. So we'll look at that. Uh, because of my works also. Verse 12, truly I say to you, he who believes in me, the works I do, he'll do also and greater. Now, see, here's the challenge of belief, isn't it? We're going to do what? You're going to do greater works than I do? Then Jesus says, these will do because I go to the Father. Here's another one. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified. If you ask me anything in my name, I'll do it. There's a challenge. Verse 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So I want to look at this under this idea, not of blind faith, not of just believing it. You know, people say, well, that's what the Bible says. I believe it. That settles it. For a lot of us, it doesn't, does it? Doesn't settle it. In fact, it creates problems for us and difficulties. And so I want to look at this matter, if you will, of the challenges the challenges, if you will, of faith. Number one, here's this first one, the challenge of believing the evidence. The challenge of believing the evidence. Now, um, I'm out of school right now, and I got a couple of ideas in my head, so I want to talk about them, whether they're on the notes or not. <laughs> this week, uh, in working through some of this and discussing it, when Jesus uh, uh, makes this statement, believe that the Father's in me and I'm in the Father. We talked about that last week. Believe that the Father's in me and I'm in the Father. We talked about that Jesus understood his Father as the source of life. We, we said that sin was, in some sense, whenever we seek life in some other source other than God. We seek our meaning, our source. It got me to thinking about this. When Jesus said this, and what's the evidence? The evidence, if you will, he'll show. But I, I, my mind got to thinking, and so I, I had all week to think about this. And that's this, and I thought, what would be the evidence that the Father's in us? What would be the evidence that the Father is in us? Now, I say that because uh, this is going to become important. You can just jot these down. But this, this uh, information about the Father in us, in the, in, in the way that Jesus, the, the Father's in him, occurs in 1417, 1420, 1423, 154, and 15.5, and 15.5, where Jesus makes these statements, the Father and I are in you, over and over again, several times in this passage. Got me to wondering and thinking about this, and I just had some time to reflect. I had a couple of uh, uh, th opportunities this week to do some more thinking about this, and I thought, you know, what would be the evidence that the Father's in us? That God is in us. It got me to thinking, which can be dangerous. <laughs> got me to thinking about a passage in Ephesians 3. So I'm going to ask you just to turn there just for a moment. Ephesians chapter 3. This isn't in my notes. Uh, I'm leaving to see Becky's mom later, so I'm leaving town. 
to the wonderful place of Garden City. But I'm coming back by Tuesday, so send a search party. Now, this idea of the Father, what's the evidence that the Father's in Jesus as his source of life? What would be the evidence that the Father's in us? This is one of the most astounding passage of Scripture I've ever read over the years, and it's just continued. Notice here in, in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. Now, Chris had, uh, had taught a few weeks ago on the first prayer in Ephesians 1.15 starting. This is the second prayer that Paul prays. And it says this, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on the earth derives its name, finds its life, finds its life. That he would grant to you, God, according to the riches of glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit, in the inner man. So that, now watch here, the, the, these, these prepositions here are the, these, these conjunctions. So that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith. And that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth to know the love of Christ. Now, it's interesting here. To know the love of Christ that surpasses what? Knowledge. Knowledge. The Greek word there, hupa, bello, means to throw something past. It's like out throw a receiver. You know, if, a, if you're playing football and it, to, to surpass means, he, Paul's saying that the love of God that we understand, it, it out throws any of our understanding. It goes beyond it. That you would be filled up with the fullness of God. How do you do that? Watch this, verse 20. And to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that, or so that. Here's, in Greek, we call this a purpose statement. It's the, the Greek conjunction, hina, that means so that. In other words, that you would know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, so that what? You would be what? Filled to the fullness of of God. How is it that we would have evidence that a person is filled with the first of all the idea it sounds crazy doesn't it to be filled with the fullness of God. What is it that fills us? The love of Christ which its height and depth and length and breadth is beyond our comprehension. As I was working on this this week I thought here it is. You want to be full of God? You and I want to be full of God? You and I want to say the fullness of the, our God lives in me and in you? How would we know that? That we would be filled with the fullness of God in love. I mean, that, that doesn't even sound reasonable to me to begin with. But it isn't that I would be filled with information or filled with just knowledge or filled with understanding or filled with good deeds or filled with morality or filled with, filled with good living but that I would be filled and you would be filled to the fullness of God by being filled with love. That, that, to me, that is staggering that Paul would make that kind of statement, that you would know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all of the fullness of God. This is where Wesley and others said this is the, listen, our, our understanding of God sometimes is too affected by Greek philosophy. 
Wesley and Arminius said this, that God's primitive nature is love. I said this before, it's not love and sovereignty. It's not love and power. It's love that informs his sovereignty. It's love that informs his power. It's love that informs his justice. It is never this and that. I call it the yabbits, you know, God's nature, yabbit, you know, God is love. Yeah, but he's also justice. God is love. Yeah, but he's also, he's also powerful. He's kind. Yeah, but he's also, he's not yabbits. Okay. Those aren't equal. Those aren't equal. The primitive nature of God, I call as holy love, set apart, different than any other thing. This is amazing to me when Paul says this, that you'd be filled with all the fullness. Now, here's, here's the notion. Look at this. You say, that's crazy, Cliff. I know. That's what I'm saying, this challenge of believing. We've been Christians too long. We, we've read this stuff so many times, it doesn't even hit us anymore. Sometimes that's why I need to read another translation of the Bible, because it'll just shock you. But to say that we would be filled with all the fullness of God by knowing the love of Christ which transcends knowledge. And in case you think it's not possible, what does Paul say in verse 20? Now to him who is able to what? Do exceedingly and abundantly above. Paul is stacking up words here. He's making words up. He's making words up to say, now the God who, now the God who is able to do abundantly, exceedingly, beyond all that you could think or ask according to the power that works within us. Read that. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above. What's your point, Paul? (laughs) Exceedingly, abundantly, above. What's the point here? More. (laughs) Right? If he can do exceedingly abundantly above all that you could, what? Ask or even think. How? According to the power that works within us. What would happen if, again, Jesus has been saying, the evidence here, the Father's in me. Father's in me. What's that like? Makes me ask the question, what is it like when God is in us? What is it like when we're filled with the fullness of God? I don't know if this is making sense to you, but I'm telling you, this wiped me out this entire week when I began to say, I've got to recalibrate some things. I've got to redirect some things. I think, again, we generally think that when God is at work, there's power. But what kind of power? The power of holy love. The power of holy love that is able to work in our lives beyond our wildest thoughts or ideas. You might accept that Jesus has God in him, or Jesus is God, and the Father's in him. But we ask ourselves, because he's going to say this over and over again, the Father's in you, Cliff. The Father's in you, Bill. The Father's in you, Leslie. What does it mean that he's in me? It means that I am filled up to the fullness of God. So I want to ask you a question. If you would consider modifying your understanding of what it means to be full of God, 
I think sometimes we think if we're full of God, we'll kind of get our way or we'll have power to do all the things we want to do. Paul seems to suggest that when you're filled with the fullness of God, you're experiencing the love of God that is filling us up. Is that even possible? Well, that, that's, that's a matter for us to consider later. I just want to go on. So the challenge of believing. So Jesus says this, look at my words. Hey, listen, he said, believe that the Father's in me. The words that I say to you, I don't speak on my own. Believe my words. I, I, I was looking at that idea there. It, it, to me, it's interesting. In John, earlier in John chapter 7, Jesus, or, or the, the, the religious leaders say of Jesus, nobody ever spoke like this man. You know, they send these religious leaders to uh, capture Jesus or arrest him, and they come back and they tell her, hey, nobody spoke like him. Nobody ever spoke like this man. And when you read his words, if you read them in context, if you read them in the culture in which they're set, if you read them in, in the context of the ancient world, a friend of mine, I've told you about Carl Medeiros. Um, Carl uh, uh, is a crazy guy, works in the Middle East all over the world, living in Dubai, uh, uh, trying to talk about Jesus to Muslims and Christians and Jews and, and the whole deal. And uh, he, one time Al Jazeera was doing some interviewing and they asked a question of him uh, one time about how could Christians and Muslims and all uh, get along. And Carl just decided at that point he would just tell a story from Jesus. And uh, he said, I don't, I'm going to answer the question the way I want to. He said, you know, it reminds me of a story Jesus told. And uh, so he starts telling the story about the prodigal son. And he starts telling the story. Of course, all the cameras are on him, and he's telling the words of Jesus. And this uh, Middle Eastern guy is running the, the camera, a Muslim guy. And um, so Carl starts telling the story. He said, there was this story. This man had two sons. And one of his sons came to his father and said, I want my inheritance now. He said, the Muslim guy behind the camera did this. Because he knew that the words of Jesus meant, Dad, I want you dead right now. I can't wait for my inheritance. He said, because in the Middle East, they still understand that. He said, the guy went, shocked at the words of Jesus. Carl, Carl continues to tell the story and tells how the boy went into a far country and how he did all these kind of things. And the guy then looks around and starts going, yeah, he's in a pig pen now, see? Got what he deserved. That's right. And then he goes to the story telling him. He says that he starts telling the story, and then the son starts coming home, and he says the father starts running, and he goes, why? Why would, that, why would he be in agreement about that idea? What's the father going to do? Kill him. Kill him. He's defamed the family name. He's lost the inheritance. See, these words of Jesus, when they're understood in their original context, have a, sometimes a completely different meaning, and they're, they're scandalous in our culture. Yeah, this guy thinks, he, he, he's excited now. Yeah, he's going, yeah, yeah. And, he, and then he said, then he hugged him and kissed him, and the guy goes, Doesn't compute. See, we've been Christians too long. We've been around the church too long. You know, if we would just listen to the words of Jesus. I told you a year ago, I, that's all I did was read the Gospels. And tried to listen to the words of Jesus in, in his culture, in his world. What he had to say. It's staggering. As you begin to, to work through 
uh, those kind of, I, I've told you before, and I recommend it again, to, in order to do that, you're going to probably have to get some help. And here's the help I would give you. The book, The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah. The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah by Alfred Edersheim. It goes through the gospel, from the birth of Jesus to the resurrection, sequentially through the gospels, trying to work through all three of them, giving a historical background, understanding of what's going on and what's really happening. Alfred Edersheim, E-D-E-R-S-H-E-I-M. E-D-E-R-S-H-E-I-M. I, I, I've recommended this book on several occasions, but I just want to say to you that I, I, I just think that, that if you're going to get to the words of Jesus, it's not because he's trying to hide anything. It's simply because these were real words written to real people at a real time and not the 21st century Western European uh, uh, Western person. doesn't mean we can't learn from it. It means we have to find out. I've told you before, when I went to a church, uh, it was crazy. We would go around a circle and we'd say, what does that Bible verse mean to you? What does that Bible verse mean to you? What does that Bible verse mean to you? Right? You go to that church? You went to mine? No. Yeah, that's crazy. That's not the question. The question is, what did it mean to the original reader? What did it mean to the original audience when Jesus said those kind of words? So his words are shocking. Jesus' words, if you look in Matthew 7, 29 later, Jesus' words had authority. The people said, he speaks as one having authority and not as the religious leaders. And we've read these words and we've looked at them so many times. We, we fail sometimes to pick up the authority or the truth that Jesus is really trying to say to us. I, I, I'm amazed if I can back up and take some time to understand it in its original context, the shocking matter of it, if you will. The words of Jesus had authority. Now let's go on. His words, but what about his works? Look what Jesus said. Truly I say to you, he uh, I'm sorry, uh, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father's in me. Look at that word in 11. Or otherwise, what? Be believe because of the works. And Jesus said, okay, if you don't believe my words, that isn't enough for you. I'm going to give you some evidence. Look at the works that I do. Now, it's fascinating to me because I, again, was always told just have blind faith, just, just believe anything, instead of saying, what does the scriptures, or what do the scriptures, and what do I understand here that Jesus actually did that verified it? Notice this. The religious leader, Nicodemus, in our book of John, earlier in chapter 3, when he came to Jesus, he makes a fascinating statement. He is probably the head honcho in the, they probably didn't call him that, but the head honcho in the Sanhedrin. Because Jesus calls him the teacher. You're the teacher and you understand this. What did Nicodemus say to him? Nicodemus said to him, Jesus, we know you are from God. Because no one could do the works that you do unless God is with him. Do you, do you remember that? Listen, here, here's a religious leader saying, we know. We know you're from God. Now, now, to me, this is fascinating because I think we have the idea that if we, we would just see the evidence, if we just see the works, that'd be it. Listen, human beings have this incredible ability, apparently, to know something and understand it and recognize it and still reject it. Think about that. It's what C.S. Lewis said. God is so great, he can make a creature that can resist him. 
Nicodemus admits, we know who you're from. We know it. But what did they, did they fall down and believe him and trust him? No, because human beings have this incredible capacity, even with the evidence of the works, to say, no, thank you. I've asked people before, uh, you know, if I could share with you the gospel or share with you uh, about the gospel and I could give you some good evidence that Jesus, who said, would you surrender your life to? You know, some have said, no. No, it's too disruptive, man. It's too, it's, it's too disruptive in my life. If, if I could get some evidence and get to the point where I really knew that, it's still too disruptive. No, thank you. So here's the challenge. Our works going to automatically make you believe. Does it appear that? Doesn't look like it, does it? You know, some, some of us have tried to get Jesus to, you know, materialize in our living room. Anybody with me? <laughs> you know, or, you know, cause a tree to do something. I don't know. The, the whole idea, if we could just get him to do something out there, something great and something mighty, that doesn't necessarily mean that people will believe. It's a challenge to believe the evidence. Nicodemus indicates this for us. Now, I, I'm reminded here in this pattern when he says, believe because of the works. I'm reminded of St. Francis of Assisi. I'm reading a book on him. And uh, I'm reminded of something he said, and you've heard it a lot before. He said, preach the gospel all the time. And when you need to, what? Use words. You know what? I, I think I know what Francis meant. Uh, I think Francis obviously meant that preaching the gospel is more than words. That it's more than that. It's action. It's living it out. It's what Jesus said here in these works. But I would say that if there was anybody on the planet that could have preached the gospel without words, it would have been whom? Jesus. <laughs> and yet he appeals to what? Look there in verse, uh, verse uh, 10. What? His words. Yeah, he says, Here, believe my words. I understand what Francis is saying in the sense that there has to be more than words. There have to be works. But I want to suggest that there is also the need for us to share his words. It's not that simple. It isn't just live a good life. It isn't just do good activities. There comes a time when we say we have to use his words. I would suggest that Jesus' words and works were consistent. They were the evidence that he claimed. And he gave evidence in both. And I would suggest we do the same. Here's what I want to ask you to do. Just consider this. How consistent, just think now for a second. How consistent, don't answer this out loud. How consistent are you with your words and your works? How consistent? How consistent is it between what you say and what, you know, what I, I'm including myself in this. What we say and what we do. This is what Jesus says is his way of giving us evidence. If our lives are going to give evidence, how is it our words and works fit? You ever thought about that? Maybe you think about it a lot. I do to say, okay, have I outkicked my coverage? <laughs> I, I told you before, I, this is a fact. I, I love to teach and I love it when you get some good out of what I teach, but I got to remind you, I sound like I know God better than I do. I sound like I know God better than I do. Any, any volunteers <laughs> that, that our words, 
can outkick our coverage. Jesus doesn't do that. He appeals to that as a matter of evidence for belief to say, listen to my words and look at my works. In our lives, I think we've got to bring some of that to bear. That our words back up, are backed up by our works. So here's the question. I've got this coming later. You can read this book if you want to. But I've got it coming later in the lesson. I've I, I changed some sequence. What if you read Thomas Chalmers, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection? This is the idea of God's love filling our hearts and rectifying, correcting some matters. We're going to get to that here hopefully today. Or if you took a saying or action of Jesus and sought to discover how that these would lead you to believe that Jesus is who he claims to be. Is it a word? Is it, is, is, is it some of his teaching? Or is it some of his action? Which one of those? Would you say, you know what, I, Cliff, for me, I think I've probably got to spend more time with his words. To, so, I, so I believe who he is. Or I want to look at his actions in the Gospels. I would encourage you that. Number two, here's the second one. The challenge of believing an incredible promise. Boy, this, this is the one in 12 to 14 when it says, Truly I say to you who believes in me, the works that I do will do also, and greater works than these because I go to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. Whatever, if you ask me anything in my name, I'll do it. Now, I don't know about you, but that's a pretty challenging thing to believe. I'm not going to back off of that one. I, I remember I told you at some point C.S. Lewis made this comment that there are some embarrassingly, uh, or there are some embarrassing promises in the New Testament. Some embarrassing. Now, I, I ask you this. Are they embarrassing because we don't have enough faith to make them work? Didn't you come to church here somebody said, you just don't have enough faith. That's all it is. Right, just work harder. You didn't get up for that. <laughs> or has Jesus overpromised? You ever thought of that? I know people think that. That he's overpromised. I mean, we're used to that. I, I was thinking about in, uh, in athletics. We're used to the hype of overpromise and underperformance. Always. I, I was like, you know, Jamarcus Russell is considered the worst draft choice in the history of NFL football. He played at LSU, huge guy. Great athlete. He was drafted by the Oakland Raiders, paid $39 million in guaranteed money, and left after three years an absolute failure. Mike Leiner, y'all remember him? I know OU people love USC. Remember Matt Leiner at USC? Won the Heisman Trophy. Incredible football player. Drafted number one by Arizona. Thought he would be the answer to the team. He threw 11 touchdowns and 21 interceptions. He's a backup quarterback now for the practice squad. Vince Young at University of Texas was drafted high coming out of college, got $60 million, today is bankrupt. I read an article in the Houston Chronicle that the sheriff came and took his furniture out of his house, you know? And Johnny Manziel, we've all heard of him, haven't we? Heisman Trophy winner, you know, goes high. He, he goes up and says, we're going to wreck the NFL. Yeah, something wrecked. He's been released by the worst team in the NFL, Cleveland Browns, right? Overpromise, underperform. We're used to that. So what does Jesus mean here? Number one, this promise is, well, said the, yeah. 
forgot I had that picture. Yeah. You know, in our culture, there's this overpromise, undersell these knockoff things. You know, somebody sells you a pair of shoes and says, hey, I'm going to give you a good deal on these. I don't know how to pronounce that. Puma. <laughs> Pimua. It's Pimua. Yeah. Yeah. It's a knockoff brand of Puma. It's the first running shoe I ever ran in when I started jogging and exercising. I looked, I thought, I'd buy that. No, that's not a Puma. That's a Puma or Pimua. I don't know. You know, here, here you're paying this money and you're thinking you're getting a, a, a real running shoe. And then when you get it out of the box, it's a PMUA, right? Probably came from somewhere else. We're used to that, that kind of over-promising and underperforming. So Jesus said this, greater works. Jesus said this, you're going to do greater works because you're such an awesome person. What does it say there? What's it saying? Because I'm going to the Father. Notice this here. You will do greater and greater works than these that I do because I go to the Father. I think this is preemptive, if you will, of understanding that when Jesus goes to the Father, we're going to see this later in 14, he's going to send the Holy Spirit. He's going to send the Holy Spirit. I remember years ago reading in here when my grandmother died, who was kind of the rock in our family years ago, years ago. When she died, I was sitting out on the curb outside the church and feeling pretty sad. I mean, she was one of the most influential people in my life. I, I can remember her whenever I would have a problem or something. She would always say these words to me I, uh, and other people, but mostly to me. And uh, I was her favorite. That's my story and I'm sticking to it. Um, she, would, she would take me in arms like this and she'd just go, child, child. Oh, man, when I hear those words from Meemaw, child, child. I knew she understood me. I knew she knew what was going on. And I thought, Meemaw's gone. Meemaw's gone. I won't get to hear that anymore. Child, 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 child. And I'm sitting on the curb there in San Angelo, Texas at the church. And the words of Jesus came to me when he said, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I don't leave, I won't send the comforter. And I thought, that's who my grandmother's been. Now he said, I'm going to send someone to live in you called the comforter, the Holy Spirit. You know, we, we don't talk a lot about him. And I fear that. We, we want to talk about Jesus. We want to do, but, but Jesus says, the reason you're going to do greater things it's because I'm going to the Father, and this isn't just going to be you work harder and try harder or learn techniques. There's going to be the presence of someone that can comfort you and guide you. I, I, I will never forget that moment. It, it was a crystal clear moment when I realized the priority, the importance. I love Mimo. I, I loved her, but, but it was like Jesus was saying to me, because he said to his guys, he's fixing to leave them. He said, look, it's your advantage that I leave. What? Are you out of your mind, Jesus? It's an advantage? Come on. No. Because if I go, I'm going to send you the comforter. The one who's going to live in you. See, I, I was going to school in Houston. My grand, my mom lived in San Angelo. I couldn't be with her very often. Greater works. You know, when you think about it, it happens. And it has happened. Jesus' ministry was pretty much limited 
to Galilee and upper part of Israel. But the followers of Jesus, when they are experiencing the ministry of the Holy Spirit in their life, Andrew and Bartholomew went to India. That was not a short trip. They went to India and actually gave their lives in martyrdom. Thousands of people became followers of Jesus. Philip went to Egypt and was a follower of Jesus and shared in the gospel in me. Thomas went to India. Matthew went to Greece. Thaddeus went to Turkey. Simon the Zealot went to Martyria. I probably misspelled that. Maritania, western coast of Africa. Go look it up on a map. <laughs> Here's what the British historian Gildas said, who lived in 500. He said this, that Christianity came to Britain in A.D. 38. A.D. 30. Now listen, it was the last year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. It was understood at this point that at this time in history, the Roman legions had not been able to penetrate England. They had not been able to penetrate or conquer the area. But the Christian followers of Jesus went to, to England in 38. And you know who it was? I was fascinated by this. Joseph of Arimathea, the one who took the body of Jesus. By 38 AD, even though the Roman army had not penetrated England and had conquered it, they hadn't gone as far as France, Spain, or the British, or England at that time, or what it was. But Joseph of Arimathea founded Christianity in 38 AD. As early as the second century, the church of Jesus Christ was all over the known world. Tertullian tells about how Christians had gone to all the outer regions of the world. Any greater work? Yeah. Why? Because Jesus said, I'm going to the Father. Wouldn't it be interesting if we understood that to say that Jesus Christ has now, by the power of the Spirit in our lives, placed us in different places. That he now is experienced, or he is experienced now, if you will, uh, through our lives in other places. That's the greater work. I don't think it's the greater work just to be some uh, a big sideshow here where I, everything I pray for, everything I ask for happens, but that the power of Jesus Christ is manifest as it goes into all the world. Then here's the second one. This is the one that troubles me. Prayer. I've been avoiding this passage for about two months. Here again, what is Jesus saying? Jesus says here, whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified. If you ask anything in my name, I'll do it. Now, you know, my job as a theologian is to qualify all these things so we can say Jesus didn't mean what he said, <laughs> right? That's how we get around it. That's how we work our way. But I will tell you this, here's a promise in the gospel that either has not been completely understood or we continue to avoid it. I would say this prayer for most of us, me included, is still a mystery. Uh, one of the most honest books I've ever read and read all of it, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a picker and chooser, but I, uh, Philip Yancey's book just called Prayer is one of the most honest renditions about this issue, facing it, not avoiding it, not trying to run away from it. 
You know, uh, Philip Yancey says uh, in in the book that when he was growing up as a kid, that it was in Catholic school that he kept asking, well, why is this and why is that? And the Catholic nun said to him, God is not pleased when you ask questions. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) You know, he is only pleased, she said, when you believe with blind faith. How many agnostics have we created? How many atheists have we created? Because we're not willing to lean into the challenge of believing. The challenge of believing this. I, I, I don't think Oscar Wilde is a good, uh, a good person to follow if you know anything about him. But it is interesting what Oscar Wilde said. You know, part of the problem for me is this. I'll just lay it out. Sometimes, you know, I, I've got to understand this. You've got to pray this in my name. I'm, as I look back on my life, is anybody besides me in here glad that God didn't answer some prayers? Whew, man. Oscar Wilde made this statement. I, I don't agree, you know, I'm not trying to say follow him. But he said, when the gods wish to punish us, they answer our prayers. Wow. When the gods, he's, when the gods wish to punish us, they answer our prayers. That seems so contradictory to what Jesus is saying. But this speaks to the notion that prayer is qualified, if you will, whatever you ask in my name. Whatever you ask in my name. This prayer seems to be almost unlimited and limited. It's the notion of it has to be in Jesus' name. Something that is consistent with him. Something that lines up with his kingdom and his plan. Beth Thomas sent me an article where, uh, you know, sometimes when we pray about things, we we say to God, God, make it better, make it better, make it better. Anybody prayed like that? I have. Make it better. This article said this. We ought to pray this perhaps in Jesus' name. Make it count. Make it count. Make it count. These ideas of saying, what is it if I pray that is consistent with the name and the work and the kingdom of Jesus? We, we, we have all kinds of ideas here, but I just want to say what it would be to be in his name. A friend of mine uh, named uh, Jared Nunn, who pastors in, uh, in uh, uh, Phoenix now, uh, he grew up in Dallas, and he was a, a good kid. Uh, but he would go out uh, and goof around with his buddies, and then he started dating. His dad got a little concerned, and so he called Gerald in. And again, they're a, they're a fine family, been in church. And he said, now, Gerald, when you go out tonight, as you go out on a date, he said, I just want you to remember you're a nun. <laughs> Several meanings. <laughs> Name was Jared Nunn. His dad was saying to him, I want you to act... Like a nun. (laughs) Jesus is saying here, if you ask for something, it's got to be something that acts like me in my name. Now, I don't, I don't, I'm not even qualified to make all these assertions. They're just observations. When I've prayed for people, when I've said, make so-and-so become a Christian, I've come to realize I can't pray that in Jesus' name because Jesus is going to make anybody do that. He's not going to force somebody. 
to be a Christian. This is a, you know, the, even in the Quran, it says there is no compulsion in religion. That's what the Quran says. There is no compulsion. So, so to say, now Jesus, make this person become a Christian. I, I don't think I can say that in Jesus' name. I think the scripture is very clear. God loves the whole world. He's not going to make somebody do something. He'd have to violate who they are. You know, you know this idea of, 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 of make somebody act right. Again, this violates some form of human freedom. It violates the fact of human responsibility. But, but we want God to make people do things. I, I saw this the other day. I, maybe this fits. I saw on Facebook. I'm only there creeping on my students. And, uh, and some of you. I, I saw this thing. We all need to pray. America needs God. Yes, I don't believe that. I think you and I need God. I think that's cheap. That's not in God's name. America doesn't need God. You and I do. Right? It's not America. It's not they need God. It's we that need him. If we're going to say something in Jesus' name, let's be careful. I mean, I, I think I'm not trying to be too judgy here. I understand what people mean. But what happens is that thing gets wide and now America needs God, not me. I, I, I don't need to be following him and doing what he wants me to do in my world. So what would it be to say in Jesus' name? Would, wouldn't Jesus respect a person's will? Wouldn't Jesus respect a person to say, I do or don't want to be in this? You know, C.S. Lewis again said that there are some people who don't want to be around God. I tell my students this. They, this is a, probably a harsh way to say it to them, but I say this. Lewis said that, C.S. Lewis said, hell is the best thing God can do for some people. That's a sad thing, isn't it? I, I say, you don't believe that? Let me ask you. I ask my student, you, and I don't ask them to raise their, I don't, you that aren't followers of Jesus, you're not followers of Jesus. Think about what it would be like to be in chapel for eternity, where we're singing and raising our hands and praising God, and we're listening to the word of God be expounded. That'd be hell for you, right? That'd be hell for a person to say, I've got to spend all eternity listening to this stuff. Being involved with someone I don't love. So if we pray in Jesus' name, we got to be careful here to say, this doesn't mean this is some magical little statement to say. I find that most of my prayer life is saying, okay, God, what are you up to here? And what will be consistent with who I know you to be and what you want? What does it mean? Second thing here, it has to be, notice what Jesus said, for God's glory, that the Father might be glorified. That the Father might be glorified. Often we think we reduce our prayers to get what we want instead of to bring honor and glory to God. We call God in to say, would you fix this for me? Would you do this for me? And I haven't stopped doing that. I still do that. I still ask God. I, I, I'm just willing to go ahead and, and do that in the hope that maybe I've figured something out here. But I'm asking, Cliff, are you really concerned 
about the glory of God? Are you really concerned when he says that you would do this, that my father might be glorified in the son, that God's glory and honor would be known? I, I, I think that sometimes our prayers have other motives, don't they? You ever have a motive? I, I don't want to feel this pain. Anybody with me? I don't want to feel the pain. I don't want to have to deal personally with trusting God. I've told you before, as a pastor, you know, you go to the hospital sometimes and you talk to people and they say, well, all we can do is pray. And I'll go, oh no. Has it come to that? Oh man. Has it come to that now? I mean, we've been fighting God all the time, right? We're working our heads off trying to get this person well. And now all we can do is pray. Are we concerned about God's glory in our prayers? Whatever you ask, he said, if you'll ask that the Father might be glorified. I think sometimes I sort of, maybe you don't, but I think sometimes in my life, I sort of treat God like a waiter. I invite him over when I want something. More chips, more salsa. Thank you. Be gone. I don't want him sitting down at my table. I don't want him coming to have lunch with me. I just want them when I need them. And so when my prayer life devolves, if you will, to the notion that I just want what I want, instead of saying, is it in the name of Jesus? And does it bring glory to God? Then I have some hope, some confidence. He'll hear it. What if you did this this week? Just this idea. What if this week you evaluated one prayer you're praying for these two criteria? Just one prayer, not, not all your prayers. Don't try to peel them all out. But to say, when I pray about this, can I really put Jesus' name in this? Is it really his kingdom, his concerns, his interests? Or when I pray about this, is the glory of God really the driving thing? I told you Dick Greenlee said something to me several years ago. I never forgot it. Uh, and I read it every day in my prayer list that I pray about these prayers that I would somehow live in such a way to put a smile on God's face. That, that I'm not just praying for this thing to get away from me or get off of me, but that I can put a smile on God's face to bring glory to him. In this phrase, the way the English is written, yes. it implies that will take place so that the Father might be glorified in the Son. Yeah. It does not imply that we're asking so that the Father might be glorified. Well, I think you're right. It's the so that phrase there to say when you do this that you ask in the Son that the Father will be glorified. I'm just trying to kind of pull that out to say I think that this notion of glorifying God is certainly in the agenda here that God wants. But you're right. He says when, the, when it's ask in the Son's name that the Father or so that the Father would be glorified. I'm just trying to kind of pull those out so that I have more work to do here. So, <laughs> no. so, so that we understand that this idea of that the son's name brings, or the answer brings glory to God. Yeah, I think grammatically, yes. Yeah, what about it? Yeah, oh no.
Yeah. Uh, she's asking the question of recording, you know, what about praying that thy will be done? That's what Jesus prayed. That's what 1 John 5 said, that we ask anything according to his will. We know he hears us, and if he hears us, we have the requests made of him. Yeah. I, if it's his will. Here's the challenge, though, in this, I'll say, and then we'll, we'll finish. Here's the challenge. Jesus taught us to pray that thy will be done. But we know God's will is not being done. 1 Peter 5 says, God is not willing that what? Any should perish. Are any? This is the difficult thing about the will of God. We pray for His will. But again, God's will is not uniformly being done. That word there, the will, fellow, will is there in 1 Peter, that he is not willing that any should perish, but they are. So this is not what I would suggest is sometimes prayer becomes more magic than real. God's will is not being done. That's why Jesus told us to pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. So how do we pray that? We pray for God's will. We pray for God's glory. We pray that it's be done in the Son's name. Okay, I'm going to show you one thing and we're leaving. But I'm not going to go over it. I'm going to, I'm going to, we're going to work on it next week. And that's this. The challenge of believing that love is the key to obedience. Look what Jesus said in 15. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. I think people believe that knowledge is the key to obedience. That understanding is the key to obedience. It's not. It's not. Love, believing that love is the key. Jesus said here, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now that's hard to believe at times. Because, well, sure we love Jesus. Well, what does that mean? How do we understand that? So this idea of the challenge of believing, I, for me, this is where I live and this challenge, the evidence and the promise of this matter, of how I live my life out. So what if this week, I just want to ask you to consider something. I want you to consider, we'll come back and pick, pick this up, I think, and we'll work through it. But the idea of believing that love is really the key to obedience it's not more knowledge. It's not more information. It's not a new seminar to go through. It's to understand love as the real basis. So now that I've challenged you, I'm going to ask you this week. Would you accept the challenge of believing? Would you accept the challenge of saying, okay, these, these are not easy things. They're not simple things. But they're the things that Jesus say to us. Believe me. Believe the challenge. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, there's some things that you say at times that are hard for us. But we don't want to avoid them and we're not going to run from them. We trust you. We look to you. We believe you. So in this coming week, would you help us as we face the challenge of believing? that We might re-enter again into the honesty to say to ourselves and to maybe even others, it's a challenge. It's not always 
that simple. So as we review these things, as we consider how we might apply these in our own lives, be with us, guard us from extreme, and bring us back to honor you with our lives in Jesus' strong name. Amen.